The following content has been rated for mature audiences only. Viewer discretion is advised. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can't get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squawk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. Welcome on in, guys, to another episode. This week is not a Krakko tale, though. Unfortunately, but... Can't win every time. No, no. But this week is a story that was researched by the lovely and wonderful Allie Beth. And it is a story we've talked about before pre-podcast, but wanted to cover on the show about the Bloody Benders, which is a name that people may have heard of, but don't know the full story. I know there was a, there was an episode of Supernatural about the Benders, which... Ah, uh, yes. The show that I have yet to watch. Uh, are, is anyone surprised that you haven't seen something? No, probably not. Yeah, exactly. The Supernatural episode is basically a modern take on what actually happened with the this family, but this took place back in the 1800s. Uh, the late 1800s, so it might I can't remember if it squeaked into the 1900s or not, but the time period is the early 1870s in southeast Kansas. Now, Kansas had the moniker of Bleeding Kansas due to how violent that region was for decades at the time. The question of Kansas's statehood was one of the final catalysts for the Civil War. And the question whether Kansas would be a slave state or not when it would become a state was another huge uh, debate that kind of led to the war. So when the Civil War began, there were some really, really bloody battles in Kansas, especially after Kansas sided with the Union. Then, even after the Civil War, it continued to be a very violent place. Many historians point out the promise of Manifest Destiny had driven many people out west to begin uh, new lives, start over, uh, find rich wealth, and yada yada. Uh, Kansas being Kansas, that's that's all it is. Yeah, you know, it's just a rectangle, it's fine. Um, <laughs> just a harmless rectangle, it's fine. Kansas isn't real, it can't hurt you. Because of this, so many people were trying to remake themselves. Uh, a lot of it, you know, they were downtrodden and hoped for a better life. There were also some very nefarious people who were escaping the law or trying to find new hunting grounds or, you know, whatever it was. Kansas was technically a state now. But it was still pretty lawless. There was a lot of vigilante justice to the point that it was like legitimately commonplace. People just took the law into their own hands. Horse thieves and highwaymen would commit crimes and then hide in the nearby Indian territory because the actual state didn't have jurisdiction. Again, just Kansas being Kansas. Yep, just Kansas being Kansas. 
Just a rectangle doing rectangle things. <laughs> so the the Native American tribes barely had resources to survive, let alone go out and find criminals and get them off their land or assist you know, the police and things like that. So pretty much if a criminal went out into this territory, they kind of got off scot-free. It was just getting there, I guess, was the hard part. Now, unfortunately, and this is um, sad, I guess sadly is a word. One of the ties that Allie really has to this is she has Native American ancestry. And this took place with the um, the native removal uh, throughout the United States. So with the Indian Removal Act, many of the eastern tribes were forced out west to Oklahoma and the surrounding area. However, what many don't realize is that it further displaced the tribes that were already in the Mideast or Midwest. Mideast? Midwest. It says Mideast here, but I usually hear it called the Midwest. I've never heard Mideast before. That just that just hits the ear kind of wrong. It does. So it was just... And since it hits the ear wrong and makes people uncomfortable, I'm going to specifically start calling it the Mideast. Better yet, the Mid-Southeast. Is it adjacent to the Midwest? Yes. It's adjacent to the Ad Iron Deck chairs. You know, Mid-Southeast. The Mid-Southeast that's northern of the Mid-South-South? Yes. That area is also adjacent to the at iron deck chairs. It's a really big chair. Yes. <laughs> you know, I I had I had a rhythm. I was going. But yet here we are. So many tribes would fight against the removal. Of course, I mean it was their home, it was their land, and they didn't want to be forced out. And they were very, very unfriendly with the white settlers moving west. So it was a very dangerous time. With the 1862 Homestead Act, the government would give men 160 acres of land in canvas. Canvas? Kansas. Good old Kansas. It is north, south, middle, east, and also ad adjacent to, to the Ad Iron Deck Mountains, where they sell Ad Iron Deck chairs. With the 1862 Homestead Act, the government would give men 160 acres of land out in Kansas for a small fee so that the land could be developed. Many white settlers from the East Coast took advantage from this and squeezed the tribes further. In the wake of the Civil War, spiritualism became popular and trendy for people to participate in. <laughs> what what was that? I don't know. Fair enough. You broke me. Now I'm broken. Did I? Did I? I feel like I, I didn't do that today. I feel like it's been an ongoing process. I was going to say it, it's been a, a long term thing. In the wake of the Civil War, spiritualism became popular and trendy for people to participate in. So many people died during the war that people were just desperate to connect to their lost loved ones, family, etc. So seances became huge and were conducted by mediums claiming to share messages from the other side. There were a lot of psychics, mediums, and quote-unquote folk healers that were proven to be frauds, thanks to Houdini, which 
oddly enough, is one of my dad's favorite people in history. Um, he actually, so, uh, complete tangent, but uh, their cat, Harry, is named after Harry Houdini. Does the cat escape a lot? He's the one who turns the lights on and off, but being proven frauds did not deter everyone from paying really good money to these people. Women were often the ones in the role of the medium or the healer, uh, which was very empowering during strict Victorian society. Many of these women could make money for themselves with seances, lectures, and then probably selling stuff like herbs and potions and that type of stuff. The the good old magnets under the table to move stuff and the snake oil salesman. Pretty much. So it really... I'm going to go off on a tangent. When it comes to like psychics and all this kind of stuff, knowing how many fraudulent ones are out there, I was watching a uh, murder mystery and makeup with Bailey Zarian, and she covered this story back in, I believe it was like the 50s or the 60s. And there was, they the case went cold, so they brought in this famous psychic. And the psychic said, oh, oh, it's this guy. It's this guy. I got I feel the energies, feel the energies around him. It's him. He's guilty. So the police arrested the dude, charged him and held him in prison. I want to say for a couple years. He and it wasn't just prison. It was a criminal asylum (laughs) because they said he was crazy because the the murders were so horrible. And then they found out he was completely innocent. At what point did the police think it was all right to just be like, hey, this lady walked in off the street and said she hears voices. And then the voices told her that this man did bad things. And so we should probably arrest him. Well, and the thing is, he had an out like he had a solid alibi. He (laughs) had there was no evidence. There was absolutely nothing except the psychic that said, that's your guy. And like stuff like that, just, it irks me. Like I I don't have any issues with the supernatural or people, you know, communing with the dead. And I mean, obviously aside from you shouldn't yeah. mess with that kind of stuff, but like it's the- I shouldn't bring one of the Ouija boards into Mo's house. No, you should not. Um, but like the, the people that are fraudulent, the people that take your money knowing full well that they're just lying through their teeth. The people that uh, ruin other people's lives through this stuff. That's the stuff that really bugs me. See, what you do is you you, you leave a Ouija board on on the uh, on their front porch, and then when they get it and they go to throw it away, you just cover it in trash and then, like, put it back on the porch. And then when they burn it, then you get another one and you slightly, like, cover it in, like, charcoal and then, like, slightly burn the edges and then put it back on the doorstep. <laughs> You are a cruel individual. Same thing if they throw it down a well, just get another one, soak it in water and just lay it on the doorstep. With the spiritualism movement, you also had a lot of proto-feminist activism. And then uh, Allie got, Allie seemed to have a really good time with this one, by the way. So during her research, she did a little additional digging into the concept of free love. And it's not the 1960s type of free love or Uh, free love, but it was um, late 19th century and it advocated for women 
and said that they should be able to freely choose their monogamous sexual partner and freely end a relationship when the love ended. So a lot of women felt marriages were often based on legal, economic, and social bonds rather than love and commitment. So there were some that even saw it as enslavement and forced prostitution. If you think at this time, like they had like the old, like if you were, I guess you would reach like 30 years old and you were unmarriable and you were just like this old weird person who lives in a house by yourself and people don't talk to you and stuff like that. It was a really odd social time. So, um, you know, it was basically kind of pushing for more of what's considered a normal relationship more today of, you know, you can marry whoever you want to choose, you can date who you want to choose, you can do whatever you want with your body. Um, So it was kind of pushing for that, but well over 100 years ago. And at the time when it was when it was weird and you were just that weird person who lived alone, like, no, I'm not alone. I have my 37 cats. Hey, hey. Cats are good company. But yeah, so this is women trying to break out of this old-fashioned mentality of, like, uh, their parents coming to them and being like, you're going to marry this guy because he's rich and has a title. Because that makes sense. Then the concept of voluntary motherhood also became advocated for, which is women wanting birth control and being able to not just keep popping out kids, you know, maybe limit their family instead of having 15 to 20 children that they have to take care of. But unfortunately, at the same time, there were some kind of hinky things tied to it, like women women supporting eugenics, which was very controversial, especially through the blah, blah, especially among the more conservative communities. Eugenics is the study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of uh, specific uh, inherited characteristics. So if you want blue eyes, you have two people with blue eyes have a much higher chance of having a blue-eyed baby, etc. So they were really getting into trying to control genetics through breeding, which was a little little hinky, depending on what they were trying to do. On one hand, that's a big no-no. On the other hand, that is kind of interesting on like a sciencey level but not actually to put it into practice. Yeah, well, I know, like, modern day, now they're like, you know, you can, if you're doing um, in vitro, there there is technically, like, scientifically, technically possible to genetically adjust the, the embryo. So you're telling me there's a possibility we could play Pokemon and just create someone who is like, give them the genes of like Arnold Schwarzenegger, like the number one quarterback in football, Usain Bolt, and we can like create Captain America. Is that how this works? I don't think it's to that level yet, but you can be like, all right, so I want a blue eyed little girl with blonde curly hair and freckles 
I want the strength of young Mike Tyson and the speed of Usain Bolt. That's actually kind of terrifying. <laughs> it's it, it's as if a Mack truck could had, had like a Ferrari engine. That's scary. Like, could you imagine getting punched by that dude? Imagine that dude sprinting at you. Now I'm just imagining, um, I forget what the character's name, but the, the really fast guy on The Boys. Ah, uh, yes, that show that I have seen numerous times. No one is surprised, Krakow. I like how you have to mention, you, you mention shows when you know good and well I probably haven't seen it. Well, I know a show you've seen. It means you have Paul. I know a show you've seen. What, what's that? Spongebob. You're, you're right. Do you watch Paw Patrol or do you only play the video games? I have only 100% of the video game. All right, so that's kind of the, not Paw Patrol, but um, this is the part of our story where we kind of wrapped up the history, so you can kind of know what's going on at the time. I'm just going to power through, because... Uh-huh. So in 1870, the Bender family claimed one of those 160-acre parcels of land in southeastern Kansas on the Osage Mission Trail, not far from the unincorporated town of Cherryvale. That sounds like a really cute place, by the way. They It does. Yeah, they quickly built a small cabin, a barn, a corral, and they dug a well. So, you know, hitting the, the needs first. And then not too long after, a sign advertising groceries was hung outside the place, and they were open for business. The family was a little bit of an enigma to their neighbors, the town folk, etc. Pa, or John Sr., who was 60 years old, was known for a perpetual look of contempt. And that was in quotes. Oh, I'm sorry, but, um, and his name is John Sr. I'll show myself the door. <laughs> I don't know how you weren't expecting that, but... Because I didn't even think of that at all. When you said it, that's, that's all I could hear was John Cena. And I'm like, I know that's not what you said, but it worked. Also, before we before we move on, I'm going back to the Cherryville comment. That sounds like something that like a medieval knight would be like, Ah, yes, I finally saved up money from mine only fans, my, mine only peasants. I'm going to Cherryville. <laughs> So now we have the, uh, oh, what was the GoFundeth me? <laughs> GoFundeth me and only peasants. I feel like it'd be more fitting, only squires. I don't think peasants have enough money. Fair. Fair. Well, you, you get on with your bad self and your medieval social networks. I'm going to make several websites. <laughs> I'll be right back. <laughs> uh, so Pa was known for a perpetual look of contempt just did not look like a very happy person and spoke with a thick German accent that a lot of people couldn't understand what he was saying. Understandable. Well, I mean, when when an accent is really thick, it is really hard to understand. No matter what the accent is or what your accent is, there, you know, that's where, where the language barrier kind of comes into play. But. So basically they were Boomhauer from King of the Hill. No, no one understood what they were saying except for close family. It kind of sounds it. So Ma or Almira, who was over 50, but they don't have an exact age for it, was just as grumpy and foreboding. Uh, people actually called her a she-devil. Fair enough. <laughs> That's how pleasant she was. Ah, uh, yes, the new dating site, only she-devils. <laughs> uh, but she was always gruff 
and scowling. Some sources also state that she talked with a thick accent, but not all. So I have a feeling uh, it probably wasn't as bad as Pa, but because I cannot call him John Sr. now. Thank you. You're welcome. While the elder benders were very distant, aloof, grumpy, a she-devil, the younger benders were more accessible. John Jr., who was 25, was considered by many to be a simpleton due to his awkward manner. He would laugh at inappropriate times, just kind of, you know, a little, a little out there. Kate, on the other hand, who was 23, had a ton more charisma. She was known for being very open and friendly with the neighbors and customers. And although many considered her to be a little loose, <laughs> uh, she was called a minx or a hollow-eyed strew. But she was definitely the uh, most approachable of the family. Why'd they have to roast this lady so hard? Like that was that's unnecessary. I I mean, just from just from these descriptions from you know the the townsfolk and stuff like that, we have someone with a perpetual look of contempt. A she-devil, a simpleton, and a hollow-eyed shrew. It sounds like they were super popular. She sounds like she's fun at parties. <laughs> so to kind of add another layer onto it, a lot of people were confused about the exact relationship between these four people. The common assumption was that John Jr. and Kate were their children, but there were rumors that John Jr. and Kate seemed closer than siblings should be, which made people speculate that either they were a married couple disguising themselves as brother and sister, or they were in some sort of incestuous relationship. Understandable. So they didn't isolate themselves the way uh, Ma and Pa did, and they were often seen at Sunday school. But they always seem to act more like lovers than siblings. Kate, though, had a young man who courted her during this time. So no one knew what was going on. She's she's very flirty with her brother, in quotes. She's dating another dude. And it didn't help that Kate was a self-proclaimed medium and folk healer. She would perform seances and provide herbal remedies to locals and travelers for a price, of course. She gave a lot of talks concerning spiritualism. She was an advocate for things like free love. Some claimed she even said there was a justification for murder. This only added to the mistrust that some people had for her, especially those who saw her as being promiscuous, you know possibly sleeping with her brother. Understandable. Got a dude on the side. Um, especially, this is still the late 1800s. Just built different. Definitely built different. Many still sought her out as they tried to make sense of the Civil War, the violence in the area. Uh, you know, it was, it was a hard time back then. You know, just in general, let alone when you're in a very violent area. So, despite the odd reputation the family had, they were very successful with their small grocery and inn, as well as Kate's clients as a medium and a healer. The Osage Mission Trail was really dangerous for people traveling west. 
There were highwaymen that would rob and kill travelers. There were native people fighting against the loss of their homes. And a place like the Benders Inn. I was like, what's the word? Like their inn would be... Cottage Inn, their bed and breakfast. Pretty much. They would be considered a safe place to stay in the night in that area. The Benders divided their small cabin by a large canvas curtain. One side was the living space for the family, and the other side was the grocery and inn. A strange addition to the cabinet was a root cellar that was accessed through a trap door on the grocery and inside. Now, reportedly, Kate conducted a lot of the business. She was very shrewd, and she knew how to use her charm and appeal to pretty much, you know, con guys out of paying more money. There were some claims that she was also doing sex work for the travelers, but there weren't a lot of sources to support that, so it could have been more rumor. Uh, You know, I could go either way. Uh, Kate also had a knack for figuring out which men were the most wealthy and were perhaps carrying large sums of money on them, which wasn't uncommon for the time. If you're relocating from the East Coast to the West Coast in a time where you didn't have phone lines and internet lines going across the country that you could just rip out your debit card and go, uh, you would take your money with you. Things seemed to be going really well until the locals started noticing more and more reports of missing people in the area. Not suspicious at all. Totally fine. No, it's fine. In 1872, three men were each found robbed and murdered off the trail. In each case, their heads had been crushed and their throats were slit. A lot of the, you know, a lot of the time, this was highwaymen or, you know, like I said, the fighting natives. So it was kind of a common report. But by the spring of 1873, there were 10 reported missing men in the area, which in a small community was scary. It put everyone on high alert. One of the more prominent men among the missing was Dr. William York of Independence, Kansas. He was searching for a missing friend, George Longcore, and Longcore's young daughter, Marianne. Dr. York had let Longcore borrow his wagon, but when he found out that the wagon was found abandoned, he went looking for his friend. He was like, okay, something is wrong. Why was this just abandoned? I need to find out what happened. Dr. York's brothers, one of which being a politician and lawyer, sent out people to find out what happened to their brother, but they didn't get any answers. They did not satisfy him, so they went looking for him themselves. This led Alexander and Ed York to Cherryvale and right to the door of Bender's Grocery Inn. One of the York brothers went to question the Benders, and he was created. Uh, he was created. Oh my god! Yes, he was created. Understandable. Yep. He was greeted by Kate and John Jr. They admitted that Doctor York had stopped by, but just stayed for a meal and then went on his way. Kate invited him into the house, saying she could conduct a séance to see if they could locate his brother, Doctor York. 
However, he declined. And then after further pressing, John Jr. came up with a story about a highway attack and took the York brothers to the supposed site of where Dr. York may have been attacked. But nothing was adding up and the brothers were getting suspicious. A little suspicious. Just a few sus things have happened, but, you know, it's probably fine. So a man named Leroy Dick was the town trustee of Cherryvale the closest thing to a mayor in the area. And he was concerned about the rising number of missing men and agreed with the York brothers that something was really off with the Bender family. And kind of afraid to act because they didn't want the Benders to be suspecting that they were onto them. So they devised a plan. Surely nothing will go wrong. This will be perfectly fine. (laughs) So they figured out how to get into the Bender home to figure out what was happening. At a town meeting, it was suggested that to clear up as much mystery as possible surrounding the missing men, each homestead in the town, every single one, would be searched to make sure they weren't hiding or lying dead. Those who lived in the area wanted to figure out what was happening. So they all agreed to this idea. They're like, yes, people are missing. Let's find them. That is everybody but Pa and John Jr. They were there and remained quiet the entire meeting. It's like they have something to hide. Hmm, yeah. Maybe. Hmm, wonder, wonder what they're hiding. No clue. One could only guess. Some sources say it was a few days later. Some sources say it was a month later. But uh, at some point, one of the Bender's neighbors, Silas Toll, noticed some of the Bender animals were loose. They were out of the corral. They were out of the fences and they were just kind of roaming around. And he went to check if the neighbors needed any help. And he found that the Bender homestead was completely abandoned. And this is very upsetting to me, so it will probably be upsetting to others. But the animals were left uncared for, many in horrible states and some dead. Well, now they've gone too far. Yes. He felt that something was very off, so he went into town and got Leroy. When Leroy arrived, he agreed that something was wrong. So they went into the the cabin. They were like, you know, we're going to figure it out. And inside was basically a, a mess. It was a quick departure. They just grabbed the necessities and left. There were leaflets advertising Kate's abilities and services scattered across the floor almost like someone knocked them over and just didn't bother to pick them up. Leroy also found a homemade mallet and two claw hammers hidden behind a stove and then another knife hidden in a clock. It's called an eight day clock, which I think those are the ones that it's the eight days is how long it stays wound or something like that. I could be wrong. I didn't have to wind your clock and you're just like, what time is it? Oh, no, I forgot to wind the clock. It happened a lot. (laughs) I mean, it would happen to me very much. I I may or may not have just flipped my calendar to February today. You use a paper calendar? Yes, because all of last year I had one that had cats all over it. 
I don't. Well, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say anything. I do. I have a planner which has calendar stuff in it, but not like a calendar that hangs on the wall. I have one of those just because I'm like, what what day is it again? What what is this day on? I mean, I have the one on my computer, but, you know, it's easier just to turn my head than click on things. But anyway, and I'm sure it's super useful when you didn't even have it on the right month. Yes. The most important thing that Leroy found was something he had not smelled since his time fighting in the Civil War. And that was the smell of death. The next day, Leroy came back to the Bender's house with a group of men and a bunch of shovels so they could investigate what would become known as Hell's Half Acre. Wonderful. Lovely name. Well, I mean, you weren't expecting something pleasant, were you? I mean, could have been Cherryville. Could have been. But it wasn't. It wasn't. No. The men, including at least one of the York brothers, possibly both, began searching the property to find out what happened. They started with the house and the trap door that went to the root cellar. That uh, the root cellar is where the smell was coming from. They found a small space coated in blood in varying states of decay, but no bodies. So there was blood and it was obviously layered. It was obviously different ages. Uh, It was not a pleasant smelling or looking hole in the ground. The men actually shifted the house over completely to ensure that nothing was underneath the house. And, you know, at the time, it wasn't like, you know, they didn't have a basement. They they didn't have like a, a concrete and rebarb foundation. So while it wasn't an easy feat, they were able to move the house. But while they didn't find any bodies, one of the York brothers found a fragment of Dr. York's spectacles. That's not a good sign. No, it was not. They also found some jewelry and other items that belonged to different missing people. They began to search the property and were drawn to a small grove that had been recently started. Uh, There were a bunch of young saplings. I don't know what type of trees they were. I'm assuming probably some sort of fruit trees or something like that to be like, oh, yeah, we're starting an orchard. Hee hee. But between the young saplings were signs of fresh digging and they were the size and shape of a grave. We're just we're just growing an orchard. We got some good fertilizer. This is great. Well, what they found next was absolutely horrifying. In the first grave, they found a man's body with his head crushed in. He was placed face down. The body was very degraded, very dirty, but they were able to move the body enough to find that this the throat had been slit. Uh, they decided it was not an easy decision, but they finished the cut and severed the head so they could try to make an ID. Uh... The body was decaying, so literally, as you would try to move it, it would, like, fall apart. So this was the easiest way to get an identification. They washed the face up and were able to confirm that that was Dr. York. I'm actually surprised how quiet you are. Are you still there? I'm still here. I'm I'm listening. There is a lot happening here, but you are like a toddler. When you're quiet, I get scared. That's understandable. 
People have good reason to be afraid when Krakow was quiet. Yes. He's either found a coloring book or he's found the wall and a box crayons. So they continued to work through their graves and they found mostly men. Although one source included that there was a woman in the um, collection of victims. The body of John Broyle was found sitting upright inside of an old well. The cousin of Leroy's wife, Hank McKenzie, was also found among the dead. Leroy didn't even know he had been missing. I, uh, I, I sure hope that this well was an old well and that this isn't where some drinking water came from. No, it sounds like it was completely empty and they just used the hole as a dumping ground. Because the people that did the, these things, they seem like the kind of people who wouldn't care. Yeah... They do. To my knowledge, they were not drinking the dead body water. Well, that's good. Let's let's not partake of the forbidden soup. Mackenzie's body had evidence of post-mortem stab wounds and head and throat wounds. Dr. York's friend, George Longcore, was also found amongst the dead, as well as his daughter, Marianne. And she was found buried next to him. However, she didn't have the same um, stab and crush runes as the other victims. Her body was severely injured and there was a scarf around her neck. And this is upsetting, but they said she might have still been alive when she was buried. That's even worse somehow. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, I guess being buried alive is one of the worst ways to die. It's not the worst. We've talked about that, which is fire, but it's up there. Well, there's a there's a lot of really bad ways, but still. That's up there. The exact number of total victims isn't entirely known. Not all victims were found in the apple orchard. Oh, they were apple trees. Some were found elsewhere on the property. I don't think I want any of those apples. I have a feeling those trees did not stay. No, I'm sure they didn't. Um, There was a picture of the dig and there are no trees. So as they were digging up these graves, I believe they were also taking out the trees because, you know. Yeah, they probably weren't precise. They were just like, there's fresh dirt here. We need to dig up this whole area. Not all the victims were in the apple orchard. Some were elsewhere on the property or just in the general area. And then besides the intact bodies... There were also just some random body parts that could not be identified and were not all the same people. So they don't know. Yeah, they don't know how many Uh, there. The initial investigation resulted in eight confirmed victims. We know there were at least 10 missing men in the area. And then you add in any females that might have been in there and the possibility of others. Um, And also... You know, usually mass killing like this, you don't just start this way. You know, you work your way up. So we had talked about some of those men that were attacked on the road uh, with their throats slit, which would have been very similar MO, could have potentially been some of the early practices, I guess. I don't know what to call them, but like they're early victims. If you factor in... All of the missing travelers, mysterious deaths, disappearance. It's probably closer to 20 
but like I said, only eight confirmed. And then that, you know, like I said, crushed skulls, slit throats. So there is a possibility for a lot more out there. That's the sad thing is they might not know how many and they might not be able to identify all of them. Yeah, so families would have gone without ever knowing what happened. Just really sad. Or worse, being like, it's most likely, but we don't know. The cry for justice was loud and swift, but the exact location of the benders was unknown. They had a head start and uh, they they sent word to look for the benders. National news media even picked up the story and soon reporters and morbid onlookers or murder tourists were swarming the homestead of what was now considered the bloody benders. Soon these tourists started taking bits and pieces of the benders cabin and other buildings until the entire homestead was dismantled. At the time, for some reason, having morbid souvenirs or relics from horrific crime scenes was popular. Leroy was able to keep and preserve the murder weapons, but almost everything else was carried off. So technically, people stole evidence. Now, this case happened before H.H. Holmes, before Jack the Ripper, before Belle Gunness, and before Lizzie Borden were known worldwide. So it was kind of the precursor for the media circus that happened in those cases. The governor of Kansas offered a $2,000 reward, which was $500 for each member of the family for the capture of the band, the brothers, or blah, 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 for the capture of the benders. And then the York brothers added an additional $1,000. So that is about $73,000 in reward money today. There were, yeah, they they wanted them caught. Well, there there wasn't a case like uh, with Bell Gunness where the people were showing up and selling like Bender stew or something. Not that I've heard of. Wonder, wonder what it was about the other one. <laughs> she was a pig farmer. There. She was a butcher. So they, they, they made stew. Uh, anyway, many rumors swirled around this infamous family, where they may have been, what identities they may have uh, changed to. Back then, it was a lot different. There were vigilante groups and law enforcement looking for the Bender family. There were a lot of leads followed, claims that they'd been found or sighted. However, uh, the best tips led investigators to the train station, where they found it was likely that they boarded a train split up at the next stop. Ma and Pa went northeast to St. Louis, where Ma had a sister. Uh, they went to the sister's house. However, oh, the cops went to the sister's house. However, uh, by the time they got there, the couple was already gone. John Jr. and Kate went south and were likely in Texas. In Denison, Texas, it was likely that John was posing as a railroad worker and Kate was introduced as his wife, which kind of circles back to some of those rumors. However, the governor of Kansas was unwilling or possibly unable to fund a trip down to Texas to investigate. The Texas Rangers were far too busy fighting the Apache and Comanche tribes to care about some outlaws from Kansas. They were like, we got bigger problems. So then after that, 
The benders were sighted throughout the years, however, never officially caught. At some point, it would appear that they moved into Oklahoma, which at the time was still Native American territory. Local authorities had no jurisdiction in the tribal land, and they had uh, to have the government send the army after the fugitives. So it was like really messy and all of that. You know you did something bad when they send in the army after you. Yeah. That's when you really you should probably like take a step back and be like, maybe I should stop. Yeah. Like I feel like even you would stop if the army was coming after you. That's where you're wrong. <laughs> That's just a five-star wanted level in Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> Uh, a Pinkerton detective claimed that he tracked the benders to Wichita, the Wichita Mountains, and was close to capturing them. However, he was never heard from again. I wonder what happened. Similar incident happened with a Texas bounty hunter who was also hot on their trail and then never heard from again. It sounds like they found them. <laughs> <laughs> it does indeed. So nobody knows how or why or even who in the Bender family was involved in the murders. Based on the evidence found and stories about the to family told afterwards gave them a pretty good idea about the method and the motive. The Benders had been accused of theft by someone who stayed with them at one point, and that case never went anywhere. So people continued to go to the inn despite the accusation. In 1872, a woman named Julia Hessler visited Cape Bander to have her perform a seance. A stagecoach dropped Julia off, and almost immediately, Julia felt really uneasy about her decision. She said the cabin was decrepit, and when she was shown inside, she immediately noticed the buzzing flies and the terrible smell. Despite this, she sat where Kate instructed her, and they held hands as Kate began the seance. Kate told Julia to close her eyes, which she was not comfortable with, but did it. Kate then began to call on the spirits. Feeling uneasy and strange, Julia opened her eyes to find the other members of the Bender family standing silently behind Kate and looking down at Julia. Julia claimed that Pa had a hammer in his hand. In a panic, Julia leapt from the table, ran out of the house, and into the dark prairie where she came upon a house and then later returned to town. She shared the strange experience, and many thought it was creepy, but they were like, well, there's nothing criminal about what happened. Like, they creeped you out, but they didn't, like, hurt you. William Pickering also came forward with a story, saying that he had stopped at Bender's place for a meal and some rest. He was asked to sit in a chair at the head of the table, which would have him sitting with his back to the canvas curtain that was used to divide the room. However, he refused to sit next to that curtain because it had these really nasty stains all over it. When Pickering didn't do as Kate asked, she angrily threatened him with a knife. So he left and he dismissed the incident until later when he heard about the Bender's crimes. So this led investigators to hypothesize that Kate likely lured men into the inn and had them sit at the table with his back at the curtain to enjoy a meal cooked by her and Ma. 
She was characterized as a flirt, so she likely kept the men at ease, laughing, giggling, etc. Maybe talked them to get like an idea of if they had money, possessions, riches. Then she would signal one of the men standing behind the curtain waiting with a hammer. They would then strike the traveler in the back of the head, perhaps just stunning them, possibly killing them outright. And that's when Kate would take out her knife and slit their throat. Yes, let me just go into this weird home and close my eyes and nothing bad will happen. It'll be fine. It's fine. It's fine. Be fine. It's fine. So after removing any valuables, anything they could use or sell, they would drop the body through the trapdoor and allow the blood to drain into the cellar before disposing of the corpse. There's a lot of speculation here because we don't know who did what, but the most popular theory, or this was the most popular theory that lines up with the evidence. Due to the characterization of Kate, she was pointed to as the mastermind of this com- this whole operation. She was the most cunning and the most ruthless of the family. Many assumed that money was the primary motive. Many men traveling, again, brought large sum of money with them to help get started in their new life. Many were traveling alone, so they were very easy targets. However, some also believe that not all murders were committed because of money, but rather just bloodlust. They were just serial killers. Not all of the men who were murdered had money or valuables on them. So it could have just been a desire to murder for the sake of murder. Or it could have been that the men were suspicious and the benders didn't want to take chances. Henry McKenzie, the man found with the post-mortem stab wounds, only had pocket change on him, which is why people kind of speculated that maybe Kate stabbed him in frustration when she realized he had nothing she could steal. There's nothing of value here. This is fine. This is is fine. We just committed murder and there's nothing of value to gain from it. Fine. One of the most interesting things about this case is that we don't even really know who the benders were. When the 160-acre claim was purchased, Pa listed himself as John Bender. However, John Jr. put his name down as John Gebhardt. The relationship between the two men wasn't explained, and it was implied that they were related by blood or marriage. There were reports that John Gebhardt was not simple-minded and used that as a ruse. One detective claimed that when the Benders thought they were found in Denison, Texas, they moved further south to El Paso. And there is a report of a man named John Gebhardt dying of apoplexy, which is the fancy name for a stroke. Immigration records suggest that John Bender Sr. was John Flickger from Germany or Holland. There were reports that he died of suicide in 1884 in the Lake Michigan area, although some say that Ma and Kate killed him. Fair enough. And I don't doubt that. (laughs) It was also out of Michigan that two women were accused of being Ma and Kate and brought to canvas to be identified and charged. However, it was almost a decade after the murders, so the locals were split on whether it was actually them or not. Leroy was convinced 
but they had no evidence to prove it, so the women were released. Ma was allegedly born Elmira Mike. And you know where she was born, Krakow? Where? In the Adirondacks. Did she have one of their chairs? <laughs> Probably. Um, and she got... While you bring that up, I want to mention... What do the chairs have to do with the mountains? Because I looked up photos of, of both just, just to, you know, have a side by side, and I don't see the resemblance. It's where they originally were made. They were just made on top of the mountain. Fair enough. No, in the region. Ah, so they look like the region. They don't look... They were made on top of the mountain, and they look like the region. Fair enough. Yes. So Ma was married as a teen. She had 12 children before her husband died Reportedly from a dent in the head. Wonder what happened. Almira supposedly remarried several times and supposedly killed each husband. She was also accused of killing three of her oldest children to keep them from testifying against her. There were no records that proved Ma and Pa were married or that either of the children was related to Pa. So some think that one or possibly both were from Ma's previous marriages. So Kate's identity is probably the most interesting. Evidence suggests that Kate was born Eliza Griffith and was Ma's fifth child. At some point, it seems that she got married and went by Sarah Eliza Davis. However, no one knows how she became known as Kate Bender. And her connection to John Jr. is a mystery. Like I said, they acted more like husband and wife than siblings. And when they were in Denison, they lived as husband and wife. Because Kate believed in free love, they may have been romantically involved, but didn't officially marry. Or, as icky as it is, they may have been brother and sister and husband and wife. Fair enough. Icky's the right word there. Under, understand. I would say understandable, but yeah. that's not fair not, enough. Just not understandable. Not understandable. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Do not have a nice day. So not much is heard about the Benders then until May 5th, 1910. The Montrose Daily Press in Colorado ran a headline stating, San Francisco woman says she has lived double life for past 30 years and declares her identity on deathbed. It turns out that on May 4th, 1910, a woman known as either Mrs. Calvin or Mrs. Peters died. But before she did, she claimed she was the famous Kate Bender. This raised interest in the case again. However, it was never proven if it was true or even plausible. It's just another mysterious layer of the story. Many people feel that the family got away scot-free. However, one group of vigilantes claimed that they found and killed the Benders, going so far as to burn Kate alive. However, this was never confirmed. No, because if they had such a high bounty on them, why would they not... Collect it? Go for the reward. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. If you did, one, you got your revenge and, quote, justice, but you didn't take the reward money that would have been offered to you? I'm sure. So I have the uh, the reward poster here. 
whereas several atrocious murders have been recently committed in Labette County, Kansas, under circumstances which fasten beyond doubt the commissions of these crimes upon a family known as the Bender family, consisting of John Bender, about 60 years of age, 5 feet 8 or 9 inches in height, German speaks but little English, dark complexion, no whiskers, and sparely built, Mrs. Bender, about 50 years of age, rather heavyset, blue eyes, brown hair, German speaks broken English, John Bender Jr., alias John Gebhardt, 5 feet 8 or 9 inches in height, slightly built, gray eyes with brownish tint, brown hair, light mustache, no whiskers, about 27 years of age, speaks English with German accent. Kate Bender, about 24 years of age, dark hair and eyes, good looking, well formed, rather bold in appearance, fluent talker, speaks good English with very little German accent. And whereas said persons are at large and fugitives from justice, now therefore I, Tom. Say Osborne, governor of the state of Kansas, and pursuance with law, do hereby offer a reward of $500 for the apprehension and delivery to the sheriff of Lubeck County of each of the persons above mentioned. In testimony whereof, I have hereunto subscribed my name and caused the great seal. So it doesn't say if it's dead or alive, but I would think that they would still get money if they brought them in dead. You would think. Yeah. Because, like, it's still closing the case for them so yeah and it's like they are it's vigilante justice but you know they they paid for their crimes exactly i i feel like they probably didn't capture and kill them but most likely not but i i can't see them turning down the money i guess it depends on how angry they were yeah like we, we don't want money just the satisfaction of doing it is well, maybe maybe they were serial killers, too. So serial killers took out the family of serial killers. They took out the competition. So from 1961 to 1978, there was a Bender Museum in Cherryvale. And that had the murder weapons on display, as well as other items related to the crime. There was even a recreation of the Bender cabin on display, complete with figures representing the family and an unsuspecting victim. And of course... That's not disrespectful at all. No, it's not. And it's not terrifying either at all. No, not at all. I mean, it closed in 1978, so I believe people realized it was distasteful. I wonder why. And of course, local folklore with a case like this uh, comes out the woodwork. Some claimed that the family members provided them with firsthand accounts proving that a vigilante group found and killed the Benders. Others told stories of supposed run-ins with the Benders. Laura Zingold Wilder even claimed a connection to the case, saying that her father is one of the men who went looking for the Benders. However, it was proven to be made up likely for publicity. Today, where the land where all of this happened is considered haunted, not a surprise. The old root cellar is the only part of the house that remains, and it is said that the spirits, the spirits, the spirits of the murdered will scare off anyone who tries to investigate the area or otherwise disturb it. So we should go investigate. You know what? Head on over. I'll be right there. Don't wait for me. Just get started. Again, I feel like I've heard that phrase somewhere before, but I just hmm. can't place where. You know what? We'll have to do an investigation of where you think you heard that from. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, some of the unidentified bodies are buried on the land. They were, you know, they didn't have anyone to claim them and give them a proper burial. It said their ghosts are tied to the land. 
Uh, other claim, others claim that you can see Kate roaming the land, doomed to remain attached to the land where she helped murder so many people. So that was a fun story. Very fun story. Y- you feeling happy? Mm-hmm. Feeling happy, Krakow? Oh yeah, totally. One hundred percent. Yeah. Wonderful. That's the story of the Bloody Benders. It is a terrifying, <laughs> terrifying story. I feel like terrifying is an understatement, but fair enough. But thank you for the story. You're welcome. Uh, thank you to Allie for researching it. She always does such a great job. Almost like we have good, re- good, good uh, eh, words. It's almost like it's my turn. It's it's not my turn with the brain cell. It's my turn with the poor English. It's almost like we have a good team of researchers. It is. It's like it's like we know smart people or something. It's like we know people who know what they're doing. Because we sure as hell don't. Oh, no, we totally know what we're doing. It's fine. It's fine. We, we know what we're doing. No, we don't. You're right. You're right. As always, make sure to check out our website for all of the show notes, sources, and more information at thesquonkandthehag.com. And we would also love and appreciate your support by either leaving a review on iTunes or through small monthly donations using the viewer support link in the description. And if you don't subscribe, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast network to get notified of new episodes every Thursday. All right, Krakow, you ready? Okay, bye.